Gosh Pods, paediatric educational podcast series from Great Ormond Street Hospital. Gosh Pods are brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Welcome back to our Great Ormond Street paediatric educational podcasts. My name is Sarah Warayich, and today we're joined again by Joe Briley to continue our ethics podcast series. Welcome back, Joe. Hi, Sarah. So today we're going to talk about ethics and law around decisions for limiting life-sustaining treatment. What can you tell us about that, Joe? Well, I think it's an incredibly important part of our role as paediatricians to think through these tough um, decisions that our families and and children are having to make. Um, Our our role is to try and improve the health of children, get them better and to cure them from, from really difficult diseases or at least make sure they have a really good quality of life with chronic conditions. But with very complex or very, very serious conditions, sadly, there are times when you can't get children better and times like that there are decisions to be made about whether to carry on what can be sometimes very aggressive treatment so life-sustaining treatments which can involve things like um, life support machinery like ventilators or um, Berlin hearts or other machines that keep children alive when their organs are failing or, or things like chemotherapy when do you decide not to carry on chemotherapy when the chance of cure is either not there anymore or incredibly small in a child And I think the decisions about when and how you stop life-sustaining treatment are complex, and I think we're getting better at making those decisions, but they're happening in more complex situations with children where there may be multiple comorbidities or the child's decision-making is is getting greater as they get older, but there may be disagreement between the child and the parents about the right thing to do. And so I think that's the area we want to focus on today. Great. So how do we even begin to start thinking about this massive topic? Well, I, I think in some ways not being overawed by it. It's something we have to do, something we do do. And, and as in most things in paediatrics, it, it's best to do that together with the child and their families. And, and in most situations, even the hardest decisions are made in many hospitals in the country each day about when we should stop um, quite complex treatments. Um, so in intensive care units, there will often be a child who, who dies each week. And a decision is often made in that environment to limit treatment. And there's a few simple bits of language we use, particularly in the ICU, to think through that. And, and you may decide, and I'm going to try and define this a little bit, um, limiting or withdrawing life-sustaining treatment are, are kind of two parts of the same concept but they're quite distinct for an intensive care crowd. So if you're going to withdraw a life-sustaining treatment, it means you're going to remove it, to to stop it. So you may withdraw chemotherapy. If you're going to limit something, that might be slightly different. And we use, as you will know, medicines for circulation like inotropes. And if a child has got a decrease in chance of surviving, given the harms that inotropes are known to do in high dose, we may decide to limit the amount of inotropes to give to a child, thinking that actually we're not particularly making the child better by giving more treatment, but we might be prolonging their dying process and causing more harm and suffering. So the idea there that as well as withdrawing life-sustaining treatment, one may choose to limit life-sustaining treatment in some way. And that, that similarly can happen with other treatments outside the intensive care unit. So stopping chemotherapy, or maybe carrying on with some palliative chemotherapy might be two parts of that same idea. Um, it, it is important to be clear and something that I, I would really hope to commend paediatricians to be very clear with families, that actually there are medical decisions made with most human deaths. 
And people sometimes don't like to talk about that. And our palliative care colleagues are really good at, at really taking this back to the basics. So most people, there will be some decision at some level not to do something. And very often we, we have that, the narrative from families is you must do everything. Well, everything is never done. It's not possible to do everything for patients at all. So we must try and do what is in our point of view and, and the law's point of view, what is in the child's best interests. But that idea that everything ought to be done is, is a phrase, and I think it's very worth exploring that with families when one hears that. We will do the right things, but those things might be more focused on relieving pain and suffering and thinking about um, how we do targeted goals of treatment for the child rather than pulling lots and lots of more medical intervention in a child who can't get better. Okay, so if we break that decision-making process down, how do you bring it to the bedside? Who gets involved? Well, well normally it's that really powerful treating group of the, the child themselves, the parents and the treating clinical team, the doctors, the nurses, other parts of that team, the, the dietitians, the physios, all that team that bring their expertise to the bedside and with these toughest decisions our job is to walk with the child while the decision is being made not to kind of have them have that feeling of abandonment of withdrawing some of our treatment at the time when we actually ought to be escalating the care and compassion whilst at the same time realizing that a transfer of a different type of treatment is the right thing to do at that stage which might be the use of expert palliative care teams and move a child from a, a hospital environment to another environment if that's what the child and family want to do. But always having that target, that goal of doing the right thing for the child. So, I mean, obviously a lot of people are now involved in this potential decision. How do you manage disagreement amongst perhaps clinicians and professionals and families? I, I think, it, I mean, obviously people get very... Um, there's a lot of over-representation about medical disagreement and difficult cases in the media. I think the first thing is to be really clear that almost all of these cases are resolved with thoughtful, compassionate interaction with the family and the child over time. Um, generally, people are aiming for the same thing, what's in the child's best interest. And as I say, it normally works incredibly well. So very important at the outset to say disagreements are really the exception here rather than the rule. Um, that said, there are increasing numbers of cases where there is initially a disagreement about what's the right thing for the child. And I think that the idea there that people bring different facts and values to that conversation about what they want for their child and they have different um, belief systems, processes. And for us as clinicians, bringing that kind of maybe harder edged, just narrow scientific view, whilst it's really important to say we're clinicians, our view is to explain the science, to understand what is technically and, and possible in terms of medication and treatment options. That broad interface between the values of the parents and child and the clinical team is really at the heart of the ethical process to help get a way forward in the situation where there's initially a disagreement or a, a lack of shared goals and values about where the child's journey ought to go. So if we just pick on, say, a potential scenario where you have a disagreement, <clears throat> can you talk us through the journey of how a disagreement might start on a ward but end up in yeah. court and what the steps might be and what which courts are involved along I, the way? I think, I think just before, so we, can before get, we go there, it might be useful to, 
me to clarify where I was going earlier on that I didn't quite get there. And, and part of this is the answer to your question that language is really important. The idea that when we're talking with children and their families, it's very important that we use very clear language. We're very, very um, consistent in how we explain things. But also that we listen. We listen to the child. We listen to their parents. We listen to the rest of the family and try and understand their point of view. And, and as I say, that, that process is incredibly rich and rewarding and leads to resolution of most of the situations one thought, well, this might be difficult. People might not agree what's happening here. The passage of time similarly will, will clarify some of the more um, challenging aspects around cases. I, I think sometimes, I mean, you have to be very, very cognizant when you work somewhere like Great Ormond Street or a specialist centre. Often the parents come into this institution with the a feeling that they've had to battle to get here um, and they're coming because treatment somewhere else hasn't worked or they've finally been referred to the specialist hospital and then for the the idea that we can't fix things it's like oh, that final dawn of realization that actually wow maybe maybe there is nothing that can be done that will, will cure my child and then that newer aspect of us explaining that in a very simple holistic compassionate way but at the same time, realising that the great democratisation of information we talked about last time it is really clear. Now, you know, if my child was unwell of the condition, I'm reasonably trained in paediatrics. I, I vaguely remember some general paediatric stuff. You can all laugh at this stage. But I would go to Google. I, I would go and look on the internet. Of course I would. So why would I criticise a family for doing just that? Our job is to help by making sure the information they are given or that they access is logical and medically um, it makes sense with the idea of treatments and medical practice because there's an awful lot of stuff out there you can find that's very controversial and difficult and i think if there is legitimately a situation where the family are very very opposed to a medical course of action and, and actually that might be either way sometimes the case the medical team want to treat and do something and the family and child say i don't want treatment and there's a very, you know, people always assume it's the other way around. But there are certainly cases where we have approached the courts for help in treating a child when the parents have not provided their consent to treatment. So I think first, before we go into the law and when you get to court, the legal important statutes we need to think about. And the first one is the Children Act. The Children Act, England and Wales, 89 and 04, series of acts in Scotland, I think, 95, that really tell us uh, and come down from the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child bring it into the law of our country we have to do the right thing for the child and how it phrases that is the welfare of the child is the paramount consideration when you make decisions about children paramount meaning the most important not slightly important not one consideration but the most important so it's really making us a child-centered um, you know we have the child first and always don't we as part of our hospital's uh, motto it tells us we meant to do the right thing for the child. Other people are really crucial in that, but all of us, the parents, the treating staff, everybody should be doing the right thing for the child. And actually, parent rights and duties are limited to those that are in the best interest of the child. So it isn't the fact parents have rights over their children, not notwithstanding what people think is the right thing for the child, but parents can make decisions as long as they're in the child's best interests. And that's a key issue of, of some controversy because who decides what's in the child's best interest? Is that a treating oncologist for a child with cancer? 
or is it the parents of the child who've lived with them for 15 years and know them better than anyone else on the planet? It's a really tough interface. And as I say, it works really well most of the time. And some would say with a 15-year-old child, the child themselves knows themselves best. But that's the entire developing adolescent stuff. And I'd look back at myself at 15 and think, wow, I've, and my wife might disagree, but I've matured a hell of a lot <laughs> since then. Um, and that's, that's important because the other part of the children act is the child's ascertainable wishes are really important. Really important. So the children act's a key one. The UN Convention itself from 98 is a massive part of how we think about children in this country. And so for any paediatrician, you really have to make sure you understand that in its articles. And other ones that are important, the Mental Capacity Act for children over 16, very important we understand how that works with the older child and that that law really does put them front and centre of what's going on if they can't make decisions, how those decisions might be made and that children ought to be supported to make decisions themselves. Um, and some of the other ones that are really probably increasingly important, things like the Equality Act 2010, which really is pushing children and trying to help improve certainly the legal standing of children with disabilities. And we have to be really cognizant of that in hospitals making decisions. So they're the legal aspects. Also, the Children and Families Act is, is important as well. So generally, that's, that's kind of the legal backgrounds to how decision-making ought to be made. And it's really all those things are saying generally it's a family-centered way of doing it but ultimately we make our decisions in the child's best interests okay so if we just summarize those five acts that we've just spoken about and then maybe could you direct us as to where we could get more information i, on I can and actually i should have said at the beginning so the royal college of pediatrics and child health has an incredibly helpful framework about how uh, these decisions can be made it goes through the ethics and the law and examples of how we think through these cases and certainly the sorts of treatments we're talking about. I won't have time in the podcast to go through all of those, but I'm slightly committed to this because I'm one of the authors. Um, and it's, it's a document that is a raw college framework. It came from the Ethics and Law Advisory Committee and it's freely available online. So free is a good term, isn't it? <laughs> and it was a supplement in Archive Disease of Childhood in 2015. If you look at the website for Archive Disease of Childhood, you'll be able to find it. The first author is Vic Larcher, so it's Larcher v. et al. And that framework has all these legal kind of the statutes and the ethical principles we use. Okay, so that was the UN Convention. UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, the Children Act, the Family Law Reform Act, and do you remember the last one? Oh, no, you're going to have to remind me. Well, the Children and Families Act, it was, and the Equality Act 2010. So if we talk about the law now um, and going to court, I mean, that's quite a complex process. And I, and I feel I, I certainly could do with an explanation on how that journey works. No so I think, I mean, I think it's very important to look at that as that is the, the kind of final place where a decision must be made. And I, again can't reiterate enough it is quite unusual to have to go to court but the thing the courts can do is make a decision that everyone has to abide by so as a doctor i i can treat a child in the child's best interest in an emergency to preserve life particularly so you know even if a parent say please do not give my child an emergency uh, from in my speciality that would be don't intubate and ventilate my child to stop them dying of um, a severe bronchitic episode i would do that to keep the child alive and then call the legal team and approach the courts to get permission to carry on treatment but i would treat the child because my duty is to prevent harm to the child 
each other are. So that's important. Other than that, generally, we treat children with the consent of the parents, some with parental responsibility, or the child. So the reason things might not go forward is either someone is refusing consent or isn't happy for you to do what you want to do as a medical practitioner for the child. There's a disagreement about what's in the child's best interests. And that might be, let's say, we've had quite complex cases where some parents have preferred treatments such as um, different types of chemotherapy or not having any kind of radiotherapy to their child, despite that being the international standard for treatment in that area. And that's a call all over the world. It's an increasing thing. And part of the challenge for us is society is changing huge in the last decade. The internet, populism, social media, and many, many people who, who really feel they should be much more the decision maker in their child's complex medical care. Even straightforward things like vaccines, which as a paediatrician, we would all say are absolutely the right thing for children. The evidence is really clear. The evidence of not doing it is increasingly clear with diseases like measles coming back. But at the moment, that still slightly falls in that zone of parental discretion. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't immunise your children, well, hey, nothing really happens. So it's that kind of challenging area that we don't kind of quite make some things mandatory, if you like. Mm -hmm. um, that's another podcast, I'm sure. But if you have a child who is having treatment and you feel that their chance of survival or cure is being hampered because their parents won't allow them to have it, you would try normal things. You would sit with the family. You would listen to why that is. And I've never regretted listening more to the family and having them try and explain things. And that, you know, it might be a misunderstanding. It might be as simple as a lack of empathy and trust previously. It might be they completely don't think what you're saying is sensible or they have a completely different worldview. I've had some people who don't think we should use ventilators for children at all. Now, you know, that's a really tough thing to have and, and some of those people there have been very complex issues in their past to, to mean that happened but that intervention point is the key thing so often the thing you see most commonly in the media played out is decisions to stop life-sustaining treatment rather than to start them and, and override a parent's decision making and again often that means there's not so much an emergency decision to be made so most of these decisions are better made slowly Quick decisions to stop stuff mm -hmm. are almost never a good thing. And there's a duty of a duty to provide full information to the family and enable a process to happen by which they can explore whether what we're doing as a clinical team is sensible and rational and enables them to explore whether different centres might have different opinions. I'm talking about things like second opinion. Mm -hmm. Within the hospital itself, in terms of let's go for a, a, one where... A family of a child who's got a severe brain injury, um, let's say they've had a cardiac arrest um, due to a heart problem, they've got an area and they've had a, a 50 minute downtime cardiac arrest and they've got severe brain injury and they no longer can breathe or, or are expected to survive off the ventilator and they have a really terrible problem in terms of brain damage. And what do you do? So our normal recommendation would be to stop the ventilator and let, let that child to die. Because people would think that's in the child's best interest. Yet the family, I don't know, we could say they're an Orthodox Jewish family. Perhaps I, I, it could be any religion, really. 
for whatever reason they feel that that's not the right thing and and your question was a good one how do you start to think about how you deal with that situation and i've said that a couple of times the first thing is to listen it really is just to sit and listen don't prejudge that family they may come from a particular background muslim you know whatever it is it might be they feel that their religious background means they can never say i can stop a breathing issue one question is is that right or wrong and one thing i think we're getting better at is to bring in people in from different communities we have our own chaplains in the hospital and think about religious issues particularly but also bringing people in from the community to support the family but also to explore those religious views um and it might well be, particularly for an Orthodox Jewish family, that that view is exactly right. That you know, ventilation is is not something that's permitted to be stopped, and and people would support that. It might be for another group where that's only the family's feelings because they're so absolutely distraught by what's happening. But actually, that's not a mainstream religious part of their belief. Mm. And and how you do that is slightly different, of course. Yeah. Um. It's again about listening, but then starting to think. And there are different terms used. Um, people talk about mediation, you know, when people aren't quite listening to each other. And there's some work been done about trying to prevent escalation of difficult situations by mediating. Mediation certainly doesn't seem to work late on in our experience when things have already become entrenched. The question there is how early is early and is it something that works when other things would work anyway? No one's quite sure, but it's certainly something that is part of our armory. The other thing is bringing other people in, whether that's um, the religious team in the hospital, people from outside. I think support, particularly for young parents from their own families, is really good. And other people in the community might be helpful. In, inside the hospital, we certainly have the PALS team, and their role is really crucial. They're really good, because often a family might have a situation where they've got some worries about how their child was cared for, and they might... They might legitimately think something hasn't happened that should have happened, or they may be interpreting that and, and they're really upset about something and, and are focusing on that rather than where the child is now. They're all very important things to explore with them, and our PALS team are superb at taking that time to take their concerns seriously and, and allow clinicians who might not be those caring for them now, mm -hmm. but from earlier on, to come and maybe interact and deal with what might be complaints or just questions. And we can't minimalise that. We have to deal with that. If we hide that away, they won't be able to move through where they need to get to, I think. So if we take, if we now say that we've tried everything that we have in <clears> our power within the hospital, within the community, to try and resolve a conflict, so, so <clears> what would then be the next step? So the questions then, and, and one will often have thought about a second opinion from other institutions, I, I suggested earlier, to make sure... Are we doing the right thing? Is there anything different? And sometimes with very rare diseases to legitimately say, is there another treatment there that we're not aware of or something else that a different way of doing this? And that might be an opinion from a different country. And that's, okay. that's something that we're pretty open to normally. The slight worry is knowing where those opinions come from sometimes and right. how reliable they are. Um, but generally, yes, very open about that. So you would go to a different country you, before you, you go you, to court? It uh, depends on the situation. Okay. So if the question you're asking is for a child with a brain injury, uh, can the brain regrow, we don't need a second opinion for that. Yeah. Um, if it's a second opinion on some very rare disease that someone has a treatment for and it's happening in Paraguay, 
we would talk to the guys in Paraguay. There's no limit on what you would like to do to help in that situation. Mm-hmm. And there have been children gone from uh, this hospital and the UK uh, to have treatment for particularly oncology conditions in the US where they had novel treatments. One really challenging thing about that, though, is um, <clears throat> you have to be very clear that the treatment someone might be going overseas for is a different medical treatment. Because in other countries, there may be different values. And that's something that's been a real problem in some of the recent cases, certainly at the right. moment, particularly in Italy, where people might decide to uh, tracheostomize and long-term ventilate a child, despite the medical team thinking it's the wrong thing for the child. And that's really tough. And that's, you know, it's not a criticism. It's just a different cultural system. That's right. But very much in other countries, they may decide that the parents are the decision makers there. In the UK, that's not how the law works, not how medical teams feel ought to work. We feel the decision should be what's right for the child. But, you know, there's there's lots of discussion about whether that's the right way of making decisions, whether a, a harm threshold should exist rather than the child's best interest, which is a higher mm-hmm. aim, if you like. Um, so that's kind of a hot area to discuss at the moment. But actually, ultimately, if a decision has to be made, the one thing, as I said earlier, the courts cannot get away with is not making a decision okay. there's nowhere else for the courts to bounce decision making mm-hmm. the law must make a decision that's why the judge is someone we all go to it's decision maker and we all have to abide by what the decision say. made by the court so whatever the court say and if i'm a treating doctor and the court says to me um, actually we think the parents are right you should uh, do this, do this, then, then I'm kind of duty-bound to do that or, or to find someone who will do that. So It's unusual they do that to make a doctor do a treatment they think is wrong, but sometimes, particularly on stopping treatments, the courts may say, well, actually, no, we think you should carry on at the moment or okay. let more time pass. And I think that's, that's an important thing. So when you go to court, you can't go knowing that the answer will be to back the medical team as a, as a default. It might well not be. You're going to ask a question. And I think when it's done very well, and our legal team here are superb. They talk about going to court with the family, mm-hmm. not against the family, but with the family, because we can't work out what to do here okay. as a team. The other thing I should mention, of course, as it's an ethics podcast, is the ethics committee. I can hear my team are screaming at the podcast at the moment, saying he hasn't mentioned the ethics committee yet. So we're lucky here. So the other part they would have is in trying to resolve disputes or hard decision making. And sit down with the child and their family and think through these tough decisions. And often that's something people have used the term bioethical mediation, thinking through the ethical aspects of what's going on with the child, spending some time with the family. And we do find, as I say, most of the initial disagreements, and the Ethics Committee just doesn't do just disagreements at all, but when we do have that situation, very many of them are resolved with that kind of MDT ethics facilitated meeting or an ethics committee meeting with a rapid review to go and talk to the family and clinical team and try and help find a way forward mm-hmm. and that's normally quite successful but back to when that hasn't happened um, so the courts and who, are, who might need to be involved do we need to get lawyers involved so when you when you're going to think about going approaching the courts in the best interest of a child to get a decision very much you really to be fair, we would normally have talked to our legal team earlier mm-hmm. and they so they don't get a horrible surprise and they, it's always a Friday night, isn't it? We think we should go to court. These things are not quick. And our legal team will come along and want up-to-date medical reports. And as you all know, 
in the registrar and the wards. Getting registrars to write reports, consultants to write <laughs> reports quickly is really quite tough sometimes. So a very well thought through, considered report, which will be submitted to the court. Um, our legal team are unbelievably good at making sure we, we speak in the language that the courts can understand. As people will know who don't write legal reports, legal reports are very straightforward and it's very easy to write in legal language as a doctor. I'm not really no. the truth about that. It is really important to write in a very clear manner and avoid medical jargon because the people that are going to be reading that, including the parents, we've shown them all with the parents as well, are, are not necessarily medically qualified. So you have to write a very sensible yet easy to understand straightforward report about the situation that's causing, causing the perplexity about what to do next. Um, and very much at that stage, we will have expected to have maybe a couple of second opinions, sometimes more than that. The courts, when you do that, the, the, what happens, and you may well find you have um, the chance to have a podcast with a barrister to explain more to you about this, but the courts generally will appoint, uh, there are three people who are represented in a, ch a child's case, and it goes before what's called the family division of the High Court, and they're the court that, the division of the High Court that decides about children's matters, which might be families, which might be uh, adoptions and child protection. But in our case, it's trying to think about that really hard decision about whether you might stop life-sustaining treatment and allow to child, a child to die because people feel that's in the child's best interests. So that's a situation in which the, the trust will be represented. Um, individual doctors aren't represented. It's the hospital that make the application to the court. Um, the parents or those with parental responsibility will be represented and the child themselves. And there's a group that are called CAPCAST. Courts and Family Children's Advisory Service, and they, they appoint someone who's a guardian ad litem who represents the child's interests. And what people are always quite surprised is that child's guardian ad litem will often have a barrister. Mm. So they have kind of their separate representatives. So unlike other courts where you see two people standing up and mm -hmm. together, here it's three. Um, so three people, three kind of uh, leading legal people are there. And it shows how seriously this is looked at what an important thing that children are and they're held in great great importance by our country to try and work out in this tough situation the right thing to do so at some stage once those initial documents have gone to the court there'll be a hearing um, and that will be a preliminary, preliminary um, discussion when people will go up and give evidence and they'll listen and you'll be questioned by the barristers for each of those three people which can be little bit hairy you know, mm -hmm. the first time you go but actually generally that they're, they're, they're a court that's trying to find the right thing to do and you can have tough questions but at the end of the day it's still the case that generally people are there trying to do the right thing for the child in the hard situation yeah and it's very important as the the doctor who might be called on to give evidence that you're able to speak clearly and explain why the clinical team that you're representing have come to the conclusion that it's so very difficult for the family. So on average, how long might these proceedings last? So I think one of the things that is kind of tough, it can take some time from when, say, an intensive care team think, we really don't think we should be doing this anymore for a child. But if the child's stable, to when you might first um, be heard in a court. And part of that is because it's very important that all other avenues are explored, sure, including yeah. all the treating teams and make sure everyone has nothing else they could try or do something different. 
It might well be that second opinions take some time to come. But also making sure the documents are in order and then waiting for the court to have a time to sit and hear the case. That can be months, Mm -hmm. which is kind of tough because at this stage the nurses and doctors on the ICU are trying to look after the child as best they can with that hard thing that they're saying to the family, we're not sure we should be doing what we're doing and just being very honest about it, but not still supporting the family and the child as best they can. Um, from the first hearing, some a couple of weeks maybe. Okay. Um, but the other thing that's happening is appeals against the decision that's made, mm-hmm. and that seems to be um, taking longer. And in the recent very controversial cases, there seem to be um, almost routine appeals to um, court of appeal to the Supreme Court, and then something we might not see in the future. Who knows? The European Court of Human Rights, mm-hmm. but. Uh, Bit political that one. <laughs> so it brings me it brings me to the courts actually. So in in terms of the courts that you might go to in a stepwise order, what would yeah. come first? So generally, it would be the the first court of instance is the family division of the high court. Mm-hmm. You would have normally that a very senior judge from the family division is there, and and that's the first court you go to, um, and very often that's. For most cases, that's where a decision is made. Um, increasingly, that's then appealed. Now, obviously, it has to be appealed on a point of law. And the appeal might then go to what's called the Court of Appeal. Um, and again, most cases will then be decided. It's like a pyramid, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So most are decided there. And I'm slightly outside my comfort zone now, so I wish I had a barrister in the room or, or a trust solicitor <laughs> to answer this better than I have. And then a, ver- a very small number might then be appealed further and they go to from the Court of Appeal to the Supreme Court, which is the UK's highest court. Um, and you know, very often when things are decided there, that is the ultimate answer for the UK uh, legal right. system. But as we see, that can then be appealed to a European court if there's thought to be a breach of the consideration of the um, the human rights aspect of what's going on. It's always very strange to me, as, as a, sitting down here as a doctor, um, if you ever see a case in the European Court of Human Rights, it's not um, R versus something. Basically, it's the case versus the United Kingdom. So it's, oh, really? it's the United Kingdom that's on trial, if you like. <laughs> or is, is the kind of people saying, actually, no, our legal system is OK. It's made the decision well. And that's the European Court's going, well, that, we'll have you. It, it's quite that's fascinating, that. Yeah, so that's uh, quite, quite politically, obviously, at the moment, uh, interesting. But generally, it, it, what's fascinating is the same um, the same law is being discussed up to the highest level of the UK courts. We have, those courts are considering the same law. And it's not normally that a matter of fact is wrong. It's more that the consideration of a particular aspect of the case hasn't been done in a particular way, which I always think it must be quite hard as a judge. Uh, you know, you automatically have the decision you make straight away. Mm. You know, that's not right. I don't agree with you. Well, I'm going to appeal. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. So, so what law is then being used in the European courts? What is, is it? It's different? the European. Well, yes, yeah, no, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child and the Human Rights Act. Okay. Um, and they're simply saying, has the UK court made enough of considerations? There's a case. Maybe to illustrate it, there's a case that's quite famous called was the David Glass case, and this was many years ago, and it was about a case in which, without going into too many specific details, um, there was a child who the local paediatricians didn't didn't want to resuscitate and he had lots of recurrence conditions and actually didn't and that, my understanding of this and it was largely from the press is the family then resuscitated the child and um, the child's mother went to the courts and said actually I think doctors should do what I tell them 
to cut a long story short, put it simply, and that you know, the first court said actually no, what happened was okay. They then went to the Court of Appeal and they said, no, what happened was okay. They went to the House of Lords, which was our High Court before the Supreme Court. Um, and they said, no, that's fine. You can't make medical people do what you say. They have to decide. And they went to the European Court of Human Rights where the case was found for the, the parents, uh, or the mother particularly, I think, or against the United Kingdom. And what's fascinating, and I, I, it's really, you know, I thought about it and actually I kind of agree with that. Um, and the reason was that people hadn't told, and this might be paraphrased a bit, hadn't told the family they were not going to resuscitate the child in mm -hmm. clear enough details. And that's really been reiterated in several uh, famous cases since then. But the idea is there wasn't enough respect for the, for the family, um, sure. the right to a family life, mm -hmm. because people hadn't thought about that aspect. And now it seems very clear, and it's a different medical world from in the early 2000s when this happened. But... Of course, you shouldn't put a DNR on someone without telling the family you've done so. And that kind Absolutely. of is the argument that happened, that the idea that you can't make someone resuscitate you if they don't want to. Well, that, that may well be the case, but that person should have said they had decided not to resuscitate because the natural justice element would be, well, actually, she should be able to go to court about this and say, mm -hmm. actually, it's my right to say actually, you should resuscitate my son. And you, you're saying you shouldn't do it without even having told me. You know, I'm sure there are specific bits of information I don't know about that case that make it very difficult. Um, but that always struck me as a good example mm. of how, at one level, the European Court of Human Rights d did have an important um, a role and that not necessarily was everything that the UK was deciding absolutely right. And, and I think that's a nice example of that. And, and um, just to clarify, that's where it stops. So once the decision's been made, yes, and that's that's yeah. it. That's, that's the fight. That's the legal process of appeal exhausted. What's fascinating is those things simply reinforce the first judgment. So the first judgment is still the one that is the decision in that first court right at the beginning. Mm -hmm. The others are simply saying no. There's no appeal. We don't uphold it. We got it right. No, we thought about it. The first court was right. So they're really saying the first court was right. Which is again, it's not they're mm. making it not making a new decision. They're making sure, and, and again, this is a doctor talking about the law, so I'm being very careful um, on a podcast. My understanding is what they're really saying is the first decision was correct, and there were no points of law that the judge either I didn't consider or got wrong. There's no process issue here. They're not saying there's new information. They don't, as I understand, they hear new evidence. They're really looking through the previous evidence and um, saying. That was looked at. That was done fairly. That was done correctly. We think that decision was was the right decision, or the wrong decision, depending on what they decide. So I suppose the final thing I want to touch on is before we conclude the podcast is what happens if the European Court then says um, we rule in favour of, for example, the parents and the <clears throat> the UK courts had ruled in favour of the doctors. Yeah, I, so how do you then begin to manage that clinical situation when the families then come back so, to so a system I suspect it's on the that had disagreed? And I, again, I'm going to probably punt this into the long grass and say, I don't know. Mm. So, so you've so never been in a situation no, like that? No, not at all. The glass case was a post hoc case, if you like. So he had been resuscitated. It wasn't even an ongoing issue. Mm -hmm. And it, it wasn't the case that they decided that doctors must do what families tell them that's definitely not the case but it was the case that on that particular point of appeal they won because not enough 
respect to the right to family life had been given. It wasn't the case that uh, people came back and said the first decision was wrong. They weren't reversing the decision to withdraw the life-saving treatment. They were kind of saying it was made in the wrong, and they hadn't been communicated well enough, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I think if it's a speculating decision, isn't it? If the European Court of Human Rights said that our Supreme Court was wrong on a point of law, I don't know what would Boris do. <laughs> we'll find out soon. Um, I it, it'd be really hard, and I suspect I, I don't know how that will play out because ultimately it's a it's a court that's considering the human rights aspect, sure. but the Supreme Court is still considering the Children Act and the particular way that's happened in terms of UK law. Ultimately, as far as I understand, the Supreme Court is the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom. The European Court is looking about whether the UK has considered things properly. And I suspect because the European Court is, is, as I understand, senior court in that context, the Supreme Court would have to consider what they said. But I still don't know whether that would change the treatment of an individual child, because this is more about, I think the way to think about it is the meta decisions, if mm -hmm. you like. It's looking at the way decisions are made, often not the facts of an individual case. But yeah, I mean, that's how it was sold in the media, wasn't it? And we will change this by going to the European Court of Human Rights. And I, I don't know. I really don't know what would happen if they decided that a different thing ought to happen. Mm. My understanding is it's normally on a technical point of law rather than on um, the specific treatment for an individual child. But that's as, as you would say, outside my area of expertise. Sure, sure. So I, I suppose it's not something that you really plan for? Well maybe? I don't think I've ever heard of it happening okay. and my only as I say none of the cases have quite gone to the European Court in that way and they refused to hear, to hear the last couple so. Okay yeah. great thank you so much Joe. Yeah. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? Oh no I'll just commend people to go and look at um, the information and the uh, framework um, and the Royal College of Regulators is not a guideline it's a framework we haven't really touched on the ethics of these decisions either yet, so um, worth looking through that on the, um, the the framework. And also some of the references in the framework, which is kind of reference-heavy with lots of good reading around there if you're interested. The other thing I recommend people is the um, the first of the Wreath lectures, the BBC lectures, uh, which I think are available on podcast still, which Jonathan Sumption did, who's a previous High Court judge. And the first one, he's talking about the kind of expanding empire of the law and whether the law is the right place for these decisions to be made and there are lots of people including some of the families of children who've been through this situation who who kind of and clinicians as well who, who worry that the courts are not the right place for these decisions yet the slight problem there is most people feel that they'd like their own decision reinforced in some other way and one thing as clinicians as i've explained that it's taken quite a long time to get to a court process, often with attempts at mediation and ethical discussions and second opinions. And our, our worry is that the child who is our prime prime person we're worried about is in some way suffering with continuing life-saving treatment or something that might be causing distress when they can't or, or, or aren't getting better. And that, that's always a worry that, well, actually, someone needs to make some decision that everyone has to abide to if the courts aren't the right place for that to happen, where is? Mm -hmm. Now, going back to the role of the doctors to be the decision maker there, like probably in the 50s, 60s, 70s, you probably weren't born. Um, <laughs> you know, the doctor who comes, it's old Lancelot Spratt, isn't it? The doctor in the house. And, you know, 
I'll cut there, I'll do that, and not consenting. Let those days have gone. You know, we, we work with our children and families. But what other body would, would do that? And there have been attempts on the planet to sort that out. So Canada particularly had a, a kind of a quasi-judicial panel who think through these cases um, with medical experts, senior legal people. But their decision-making is final. Mm-hmm. And it means it doesn't... Um, these things don't... This is, I think it was the state of... I think it was Ontario, I think... These things don't go to a court where it's very oppositional, even though the family division of the high court tries to be more inquisitional, work out the right thing to do for the child, not going against the family doctor, family versus hospitals, which is the way the media love to portray it, but more what do we do for this really tough situation where we all want the right thing for the child but can't agree what it is. Um, Is that a better way of doing this? Um, But ultimately, that whatever that is, that has to be able to make the final decision that we all agree to abide to. And that's one of the slight issues that in recent cases you've seen that some of the people involved in these um, difficult decisions have said, it doesn't matter what the court says, I will decide what's right. Well, actually, if you won't accept the jurisdiction of the court, then it's hard to work out how you can go forward. Sure. You yeah. won't accept anyone's kind of decision making over what goes on. The only person who can decide is me. That's not a way you can really feel how you're going to resolve this decision in a kind of a way that thinks about all the things that need to be thought through. Great. Thank you very much, Joe. So that concludes our podcast for today. Stay tuned for further podcasts in the Ethics series. Thank you for listening to Gosh Pods. If you would like more information on courses and educational opportunities offered by Gosh Learning Academy, please visit the website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy or follow us on Twitter at Gosh Learn Acad.